I will uh, direct your attention to the book of Romans this morning, to the second chapter, Romans chapter 2, where we'll continue in Paul's letter, reading the first five verses of Romans 2. As you are uh, turning there in your Bibles, I'll remind you that we've heard Paul say this before, what he's going to say this morning. We've heard him proclaim those words, they are without excuse. Only this time, Paul changes the pronoun. It is not they who are without excuse. Paul writes, it is you who are without excuse. If it were somehow unclear last time that he was speaking about you and about me, This time, it is perfectly plain that it is we, the church-goers, the morally upright, at least outwardly, and most of the time, the nice people who are now in Paul's crosshairs the ones in Paul's sights who are without excuse. So to the scripture we go, but first to God in prayer for what we so desperately need right now. And Father, what we desperately need right now is not an it at all. It is a whom. We need your spirit. We need him to come and open our eyes. And write your word upon our hearts. Open our ears to receive your law and to live according to it. Send him mightily now upon us, we pray, as we open the word that he himself inspired when first it was written. That he has illumined to your people for these thousands of years since. And is pleased to do in this very place right now. By his power and at your behest. We pray it for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed not all those who first heard Paul's letter to the Romans read to them found themselves described in chapter 1 not all of those who read or heard it preached then Not all those who read it or hear it preached today do either. Worshippers of lizards and birds? Sexually immoral? 
Murderers? Homosexuals? Not us. Not I. I'm a good person. We're good people. We're the religious ones. We only see that sort of thing from the inside of the church windows looking out. Or from the inside of comfortable homes marked by work and family values and good children and nice things. We look out on a world filled with shameful disobedience. To Paul's condemnation of those bad people out there, we are quick to add our yavol. That's right, Paul. Let's call a spade a spade. Look at those wicked people out there. Now Paul turns his eyes from those shameless sinners out there to another kind of sinner. It is not the one who is daily or weekly involved in drunken orgies. It's not the one who walks down the street hand in hand with and kissing his partner of the same sex. He is the one whose hair is the right length who works hard at his job, who wears nice clothes, who who has never so much as received a speeding ticket in his life. In fact, he would never dream of of joining those who are in terrible, drunken orgies. He's always been faithful to his wife. He is repulsed, genuinely repulsed by the very thought of homosexuality. And now with devastating accuracy, Paul exposes this sinner for who he is. He is the moralist. His moral standards are high. He's no thief, certainly not a murderer. No one would accuse him of being a fornicator. And Paul speaks to him, to this moral man, and he informs him that he is as much a child of hell as the people he so abhors. The ones Paul has described in chapter 1. Oh, he objects. The moralist does. He's never done those terrible things. He's never even snuck into an adult bookstore when no one was looking. He is a good person. Of course. And, and everyone thinks him a pretty good person. Hardly anyone who reads the first chapter of Romans finds himself there herself described in those words. Even Al Capone, the notorious Chicago gangster, hardened killer, and for years public enemy number one, according to the FBI, lamented about himself thusly. I have spent the best years of my life, Capone said, giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time. And all I get is abuse. The existence of a haunted man. Now if Al Capone, hardened Al Capone, can make it his own habit to consider himself overall a pretty good person in his largesse toward those to whom he gave the lighter pleasures, how much more the nice fellow who keeps his lawn trim, 
who works hard to put clothing on his children's backs, who gives money to the church, who attends anti-casino rallies in his hometown, never kicks the dog, and always kisses his wife hello when he gets home from work. It is to this person that Paul turns now and, and says, and as for you, can't be speaking about me is the objection. I'm not one of those bad people. I've never slept with my secretary like those other guys. I've never stolen anything from the company till. I've never killed anyone like those terrible people who are in jail or writing books about it. I hate those things just as much as you do, Paul. There are many reasons why a person might think himself or herself higher than those sinners described in Romans chapter 1. It may be because of their race. It may be because of her social or financial status. Because of their environment, even education. But in Paul's spirit-filled mind, those who stand on those pathetic pedestals to look down on real sinners are in fact just as bad. They may be respectable sinners, but they are sinners nonetheless and subject to the same terrible judgment as the very ones they so despise. In Paul's day, as in ours, there was another side to paganism. Some, like Seneca, for instance, had a, a modicum of moral sense about him, uh, he would readily have agreed with his contemporary Paul about the state of mankind. Deplorable, he would have agreed with Paul. But Paul would have seen through that too. My good sir, F.F. F. Bruce imagines Paul saying to Seneca, my good sir, in judging others, you are passing judgment on yourself, whoever you may be. For in principle, you do the same things as you condemn in them. And how apt this reply would have been to a man like Seneca, continues Bruce, for Seneca could write so effectively on the good life that Christian writers of latter, later days were prone to call him our own Seneca. Not only did he exalt the great moral virtues, he exposed hypocrisy, he preached the equality of men, he acknowledged the pervasive character of evil, all vices exist in all men, though all vices do not stand out prominently in each man, Seneca said. He practiced and inculcated daily self-examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry. He assumed the role of a moral guide, Seneca did. But too often, he tolerated in himself vices not so different from those he condemned in others. The most flagrant instance being his connivance at Nero's murder of his mother Agrippina. In other words, Seneca, like many, many others today, fall under the heading of respectable sinners, people who do not consider themselves very bad, not bad at all, really. They fall, these people do, they fall on the wrong side of the divide the great divide of all mankind 
Righteous people who consider themselves sinners and sinners who consider themselves righteous. Who are quick to condemn others for doing the very things they themselves do. It is that deadly combination of hypocrisy and blindness. Hypocrisy that condemns others for the very things they themselves do and blindness that fails to see the self-condemnation in the very condemnation it passes on others. Or we might say that, that it is a, an ironic combination of sharp-sightedness and blindness. Sharp-sightedness to others' sins. Blindness to its own. I can already hear you objecting in your hearts. You know, and you'd stand and say right now, you don't do the things that Paul described in Romans chapter 1. That just does not describe you. Therefore, you have the right to look down on people who do such things. Ah, but is it true? Examine your argument. Is it true that you have not been sexually immoral? Is it true that you have not murdered anyone? Is it true that you have not stolen? Tell me, what really is the difference in God's holy eyes? I mean, what is the difference between breaking into a store at night and taking cash from the register or shading the numbers on your tax return so that you don't pay as much as you owe, or failing to clock out at work when you took that 15-minute phone call. Are not all of those stealing in God's sight? What's the difference between jumping into bed with a prostitute and undressing that lady with your eyes at the gas station. Jesus said in his sermon on the mount that to do, to do the latter is in essence to do the former. As far as God is concerned, what's the difference between stabbing a knife into the chest of a fellow who irritates you or spreading gossip about him? or even just despising him in your heart. The verdict in heaven is the same. Murder. You see, we're all guilty. Every one of us, we have all broken God's law and are therefore sinners in God's sight. Not a single one of us may say for one minute that we are better in and of ourselves than, than anyone else. In fact, all of our best self-manufactured righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. No better than anyone else's. You know, it sometimes helps in this regard to take a ride in an airplane. When you're on the ground, you can compare men and women to each other. Some are shorter, some are taller, there may be as many as a few feet of difference 
between one person and another when you're standing alongside them, looking at them in the face. But get into an airplane and look down on them from about 3,000 feet above, and they don't look very different from each other, do they? Not very different at all. They all, in fact, they all look about the same. The difference that was so striking to you when you were standing there, looking them in the face, now disappears completely from just a short distance away. So it is with our righteousness. Now put a devoted husband alongside a male prostitute. They look quite different from up close and outwardly speaking. One seems much more clearly righteous than another. But step back and rise above and look at them from the standpoint of God's perfect, impeccable righteousness. See their hearts, their thoughts, their motives through the pure and holy eyes of God. And suddenly the differences between them aren't so great anymore. In fact, they disappear. Both are sinful. Both have broken God's law. Both stand equally in need of the sacrifice that required nothing less than the blood of God the Son shed on the cross for their sin. For one to look down upon the other, if you will forgive the expression, is like the pot calling the kettle black. Now, admittedly, the church itself bears some responsibility for this mindset, for allowing men to think more highly of themselves than they should and looking down upon others. Years ago, the great Presbyterian scholar and churchman, J. Gresham Machen, wrote that the fundamental fault of the modern church is that it is busily engaged in an absolutely impossible task of calling the righteous to repentance. Modern preachers are trying to bring men into the church without requiring them to relinquish their pride. They are trying to help men avoid the conviction of sin. But it is entirely futile. Even our Lord did not call the righteous to repentance. And probably we shall be no more successful than he. You see, it is only those who know themselves to be broken people, who know their sinfulness, who have reckoned with the blackness of our own hearts, Till a man is broken over his sin, he cannot begin rightly to think about others. Until he knows how low his sin has brought him, how it has pinned him to the ground and flattened him under its guilt, he, he, will, continue, he will continue pretending look, to look down on others and how terrible they are. And as long as he does that, he is the man to whom Paul is writing here in the most stringent of terms. Now, there are three lessons for us to learn in this passage. For every one of us this morning who are prone to write our own condemnation in the very criticism 
we level against others, both inside and outside the church. First, you must recognize that in judging others and condemning them for the very sins you commit, you are trading on the mercy of God. Despising it, really. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? They're two great things that you are despising, two of God's attributes upon which you, you trample when you spend your time looking down and condemning others. First of all, you are toying with the kindness of God, with the kindness of God to you. Archbishop Trench says of this word for God's kindness that it is a beautiful word. It is the expression of a beautiful idea, and it is a beautiful truth indeed. God is unspeakably kind to you every day, every minute, every second, with every breath that fills your lungs. God is kind to you. With every laugh you enjoy, God is kind to you. With every hug of a person who loves you, God is kind to you. With every sight of a beautiful flower, God is kind to you. With every bite you put into your mouth, God is heaping kindness upon kindness upon kindness on you. But when you use that breath to speak ill of another, when you use the energy that food supplies to you and the digestion of it to despise a fellow sinner, you trample on the kindness of God. Second, you despise the forbearance and patience of God. Now, I know that there are two things there, forbearance and patience, but they go together, really. John Murray points out that, quote, together they express the idea that God suspends the infliction of punishment and restrains the execution of his wrath. In other words, God does not cause his wrath to fall immediately upon you for your sin. He holds it back. He does not let you have it right away. But it is precisely that long-suffering forbearance that you put to the test with every criticism you level against someone else for the very sins you commit. If not outwardly, to one degree or another, certainly with your own heart. And I warn you, in God's name today, don't play with the patience of God. Don't press God's forbearance for using it by using it as an opportunity to look down your self-righteous nose at someone else, at your neighbor. That is to despise the kindness and the long-suffering forbearance of God to you. Use it instead as an opportunity to fly 
from your own sins and into the arms of your Savior. Which brings me to the second point. Use the mercy of God not as an invitation to sin, but as an incentive to repent. Look at the end of verse 4 where Paul asserts it even if in the form of a question. He says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's why God has not destroyed you in your way, you who think highly of yourself, who would actually look down your nose at someone else. That is why God has not destroyed you in your way. God is kind to you so that you will repent. He is patient for your repentance. That is for you to turn from your sin and to turn to Him. Now, don't miss the point. Don't miss the lesson here. God has not wiped you out and your proud heart off the earth because He thinks well of you. He has not done so in order to give you ample opportunity to repent. But if you will not, then third, the mercy of God to you will come to an end and judgment will take its place. Verse 4, Paul asks you now, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And in verse 5, he answers his own question. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's the ultimate irony. The person who impenitently crosses his arms and looks down on those people whom he considers to be really sinful and despicable people and can hardly wait to see the acts of God's punishment fall upon them, that person will find in a terrible irony that the whole while he was storing up wrath for himself. Indeed, it may be that the one he was looking down upon, because that person of their sins of his sins will enjoy the blessings of God while the one who will look down on him in self-righteous judgment will suffer God's curses isn't that ironic and terribly so my friends do not think lightly of the righteous judgment of God and do not trample on the riches of his kindness and his patience toward you do not make the same mistake of that Frenchman who so glibly certain that his own sins were a small matter especially compared to others so small a matter that God would simply wipe them away because as he said c'est son métier it is his job God's mercy has an end. The riches of His kindness and mercy toward you can be fully spent 
And when they run out, only judgment is left. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that Paul's design here is to take away the subterfuges of the hypocrite, lest he should pride himself if he obtained the praise of men for a far more important trial that awaits him at the bar of God. You may think of yourself highly because others do. Because others praise you. Don't let that blind you. There is only one, only one, whose praises and whose wrath really matters. That is the one whose eyes fall not merely on your outward appearance, but rather upon your heart. And looking there, he sees all and renders you who look down on your sinful neighbors and not up to God. And you can't do both, by the way. You're so busy looking down upon a sinner, you have no time to look up to God. It's one or the other, but not both. I say He renders you without excuse on the day of His wrath. How much better to say to the Lord this day and every day with an eye for your own sin and not for the sins of others. Am I a stone and not a sheep that I can stand, O Christ, beneath Thy cross to number drop by drop Thy blood's slow loss and yet not weep? Not so those women loved who with exceeding grief lamented Thee Not so fallen Peter weeping bitterly. Not so the thief was moved. Not so the sun and moon which hid their faces in starless sky. A horror of great darkness at broad noon. I, only I, yet give not o'er, but seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock, greater than Moses, turn and look once more and smite a rock.